We continue on in our series on the kingdom of God in the, the book of Luke, and our scripture this morning comes from Luke 11, verses 14 through 26. Now, Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute, and when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others test him, uh, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if by the finger of God that I, ca that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor, in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And when the unclean spirit goes out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to the, my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. And then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more was evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. The word of the God. The word of the Lord. Appreciate David's prayer earlier, and I want to build on that. <laughs> Lord, we, uh, we ask that you be with us as we reflect on this passage, which for modern ears is maybe hard to understand or to what it, how it applies in our lives. And I pray, Lord, this morning that we would know the power of the gospel, uh, the power of the gospel to liberate and to set free, as many of our prayers that were echoed this morning. Uh, just give us a vision, Lord, this morning of what it means for us to be a church that is engaged in this ministry of exorcism. Lord, uh, we give you thanks and praise in the name of Christ. Amen. So recall Jesus' announcement uh, from, of the kingdom, his program, in a sense, of the kingdom of God from Luke 4, which I preached on the very first Sunday of this series. He's quoting from Isaiah, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So this morning what we're going to do is explore through this story one of those clauses of Jesus' kingdom ministry, the one that is to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And the, and the most concrete demonstration of this in Jesus' ministry is, is the various exorcisms that he performs. An exorcism is the casting out of a demon, as uh, we have in our story and um, it is Jesus' confrontation with supernatural evil in the world. And it is not an incidental part of Jesus' ministry. In the Gospel of Luke, uh, there are four different stories that give attention to exorcism. And then there's references to many other exorcisms that Jesus did. And all the rest of the Gospels have other stories as well. 
So it's not, it's not an incidental thing. It's, it's a central aspect of Jesus' ministry um, in all the Gospels. Now, if you think about it, the forgiveness of sins, Jesus' ministry of the forgiveness of sins deals with the evil within. Jesus' ministry of exorcism deals with evil that holds us in bondage without, right? And so um, the ministry of exorcism really demonstrates the real power of the gospel, that the gospel has real-world power. That's why it's a kingdom. It's not just a spiritual reality. Um, it has real power. And this, for Jesus, is a visible sign that the kingdom has come. Right? He says, if it is, indeed, by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so this morning, we are going to explore this question. I, 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 would, I just want to explore the question, what does it look like, or what does it mean uh, for us as a church or as people to have a ministry of exorcism? What, is, what does this even mean or apply to our lives? Now, I know I have everybody's attention, right? <laughs> ministry of exorcism. Tell me more, right? <laughs> we have lots of questions. Lots of questions about how to interpret these texts, or at least the texts are pretty plain. They're pretty straightforward. I think all our questions have, how do these things apply, right? Um, you know, is this still the ministry of the church today, exercising demons? And, I mean, within a modern world, a scientific world that understands a lot more about the body and mental health and all these things, is this even relevant? And I think, too, I mean, there's this, you know, okay, I can believe in God, but believing in demons and the devil, you know, that's kind of fanciful and mythological. And, uh, you know, a lot of Christians, you know, kind of tend to take this, this view of things. Uh, we think of the the demonic or the devils as a kind of holdover from a primitive worldview. Um, or, you know, usually probably, and I would say that many of our views or our imagination for demons and devils is shaped by popular culture, right? Movies like The Exorcist or Poltergeist or Rosemary's Baby and then the hundreds of other demon-related, I mean, there's a lot of them out there in the horror movie genre, right? But I think our most common instinct is just to kind of what, what scholars call to demythologize, right? It's to remove the mythical elements of it. When I was uh, a student at Princeton Seminary, I remember this, this topic of exorcisms came up, and one of my professors, in a just sort of offhanded way, um, just said, well, of course we all understand that, um, you know, uh, when the New Testament talks about exorcisms, it's really just talking about people with mental health problems, right? They didn't have the categories back then to understand mental health issues and, uh, that we have now, but that's really what it refers to. You know, that's one way that I think a lot of people try to understand these, these stories and the ministry of exorcism, right? Um, but even if you are not prone to just dismiss or disbelieve in the reality of Satan or the demons, you know, you're not really sure what to do with it. And you're a little afraid of taking it too seriously, right? You don't want to become a Pentecostal, right? Or a charismatic, or one of those old Catholic priests that, you know, has a ministry of exorcism. And there are, right? And so, but the problem is, just we, it's like we believe in it, but we're like, how does this apply? Uh, and you don't, you know, you, you don't want to talk about the, de the devil in mixed company. Um, but there's something really lost when we don't grapple with this material and ask the question of what it means for us today. And I think the two things are this, is one, we, we underestimate the true depth of evil. And two, we, under, we underestimate the true power 
of the gospel to liberate people from evil. And so what is this ministry of exorcism all about? Let me just give you a brief definition. And, and um, this text is, a, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling in a lot of material from the Gospel of Luke and the Gospels on this, but this text is our main frame. But a ministry of exorcism is about confronting spiritual powers that hold people captive to forces that distort and disfigure their humanity. Um, a ministry of exorcism is about confronting spiritual powers that hold people captive to forces that distort and disfigure their humanity. Forces that distort their, their own sense of self, forces that, that keep them from community, and forces ultimately that keep them from a relationship with God, right? That's the effect of the demonic. It is to, to kind of so disfigure and distort our own humanity that we, we can't even be in right relation with ourselves and with others, and, and, and for sure not God. And, you know, when you think about the primary examples in the Gospels, uh, this is what you see. The most well-known story of the, the, the demoniac, the man with a legion of demons from the Gerasenes, right? He is so dangerous to himself and to others that he has been chained up outside of town in the graveyard, in the tombs. And they put him in shackles, but he was so strong that he broke the shackles. And he's naked, <laughs> And Mark tells us that he cries out, he's screaming day and night, and he's cutting himself with stones, right? So this is a picture of a man who is so tormented and isolated and, and misery, right? Or the other story that comes in, in the next chapter in, in the Gospel of Luke here is uh, the story about the boy that is possessed by a demon, and the father is like the... This, this, my, my son is possessed by a demon, and it, throws, he's, it makes him mute, he can't talk, and it throws him to the ground and causes him to convulse, and like epileptic seizures. And, and he says of this demon, he has shattered my son. <laughs> he has shattered my son. And, and I mean, that, that's what the demonic does, is it shatters us. It, it shatters our humanity. It distorts and it disfigures. Um, that is the effect of the demonic, the powers in the world is that they enslave us. They enslave people to uh, destructive and disfiguring behaviors. Uh, they enslave us to social systems um, and, and ideologies that destroy our humanity and cause us to want to destroy other people's humanity, that steal our capacity for relationships, steal our capacity and ability to be in relationship with God. Now, you think, well, what are some examples of this? <laughs> They're everywhere, right? Think about addictions. You know, we have all kinds of addictions in our culture. Drug addiction, alcohol, sex addiction, addiction to technology. And what does addiction do? I mean, again, like when it's bad, I mean, it, it's an all-consuming thing that causes people to do things that are incredibly destructive to themselves and to their families. I mean, we don't even, and don't think just in terms of like drug addiction. I mean, technology is a form of addiction that many people, that's a little bit more commonly accepted. That, that's, that's an, again, it's a form of demonic, you know, power exercise in itself. Or another example, think about certain social systems um, that enslave people, right? Whether it's generational poverty or fatherlessness or systemic racism, right? <laughs> Slavery, segregation, 
Jim Crow, these are all demonic realities that enslave people and still have their legacy today. Or think about the many uh, increasing uh, captivity that people have to various political ideologies on the right and on the left that create division and extremism and hatred. Again, these are all manifestations of the demonic in the world. And I think it's actually helpful that, that the name that Satan is given in this text, Beelzebul, it's kind of a helpful way for us to understand, again, how the demonic is active in the world around us. Uh, Beelzebul is a, a name for, you know, Satan as the prince of demons, but it, most scholars think that the word is derived from uh, the word Baal, which is the god of the Canaanites. Baal was sort of like the prince of the gods. And the Jews understood that all the gods of the nations, behind every god of the nation, I mean, they were false gods, they weren't really real gods, but behind every god was a demon that had real power, right? And Baal, in particular, was well known. Uh, one of the practices of Baal worship was to sacrifice your children. I mean, there's literally like sacrificing your children to Baal. Now, you think about this, right? Like, that, that's what an idol does. That's what a false god does. It distorts our humanity. I mean, and there's nothing that more destroys our humanity when we make our children, you know, like pawns, you know, of, of our worship, where we're willing to sacrifice and kill them for the sake of the thing we worship. There's a lot of things in our culture that fit that today. Our culture doesn't believe in literal gods like Baal, <laughs> right? But it has all kinds of gods, all kinds of idols, money, sex, power, personal freedom, pleasure, violence. These are just to name a few of the gods. And the point is this, is that behind every idol, behind every god of a culture, there is a spiritual force. There is an authority that enslaves people and keeps us captive to it, right? It's not like, you know, these aren't real gods, but they have real power, right? So if the church is to have a ministry of exorcism, it needs to understand the spiritual nature of power in the world. And a ministry of exorcism understands that all power has a spiritual dimension, and I'm not talking about, when I, when I talk about spiritual power, I'm not talking about something that's like distinct from all these other powers. All power is spiritual. When you think of it, power is invisible. You know, how does power exercise its influence? It's, it's usually invisible influence. And that's not to say that, that power is only spiritual, but all power has a spiritual dimension to it. One of the big assumptions of this story um, it, with Jesus is that nobody questions whether Jesus really cast out a demon and whether there's real spiritual power there. The question in the debate really is, is, well, what's the source of the power, right? So it's like, you know, Jesus casts out this demon, and then people are like, well, some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others said, you know, we want a sign. No one questioned whether Jesus was exercising spiritual power. It was just a question of what was the power source. Now, I think as modern people, we really struggle with this theme of the demonic and the spiritual dimensions of evil. Um, and I think because of that, we have a pretty shallow understanding of evil and a shallow understanding of how to really confront it and deal with it. And, and here's where I think, you know, C.S. Lewis arguably is the most helpful person you could read <laughs> to kind of give us a balanced view for understanding how to think about the spiritual and the supernatural dimensions of evil in the world. Uh, I gave you, there's a quote in the beginning of the worship folder 
that is worth its weight in gold. And this is what C.S. Lewis, it's in his preface to the Screwtape Letters. And the Screwtape Letters is uh, a book he wrote, a fictionalized account of an elder demon writing to a younger demon, advising him on temptation and strategies and, and all that. It's, it's pretty humorous, but it's, it's quite profound spiritually. But Lewis opens that book with this comment. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors in, into which the human race can, um, can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to um, believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. The devils themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. What Lewis is saying here is that it's possible to overbelieve and to underbelieve, right? The materialist underbelieves. The materialist says there's no such thing as any devils or demons behind any of this. And when it comes to the problem of evil and, and, and moral evil in the world, you know, usually it's, well, evil is an a factor of the environment, right? It's social structures that teach people to do bad things. And if we can change the social structures, then we can eradicate evil in the will world. Or evil is sort of like these random individuals, bad actors. And if we can identify these people in time, we can keep them from doing these horrendous things, right? That is the materialist understanding of, of evil um, that disbelieves. But the, the magician, as he says, or the magical view, just sees the spiritual. Everything in life, it's just the spiritual. It's the demons or it's the devil. And, and there's a sense in which you, you don't pay attention to, to the material or the, the moral conditions right in front of you at all. It's just, it's Satan, right? And Lewis says, you know, both of these counts are wrong. Both are incomplete accounts of evil. Evil in the Bible is a very complex phenomenon. It's a very complex phenomenon. Um, it is a, an interaction uh, uh, between, you know, in the Bible, biblical terms, the world, the flesh, and the devil. You know, the world... Are the, it's the social structures. It's the fallen social structures that are unjust, that are corrupt, that are idolatrous. The flesh is the sinful human heart that is prone to do evil. And then the devil is the one who is able to bring them together to maximize you know, the impact. You know, the devil is like a, a, a symphony, or, you know, he's like a, a director of an orchestra who is able to weave together our sinful hearts and inclinations with a corrupted world um, into a symphony of destruction. That's how the devil works. To believe in the devil or the demonic is to understand that evil in the world, there's evil in the world that transcends, not, not like God, but transcends the mere physical, material, historical realities. There is something behind these things. It is to understand that evil is organized, right? Sometimes we think of evil as just sort of random. It happens. But evil is organized. There is a dark intelligence strategizing and organizing chaos and destruction. It is not random. To recognize this is not to, to say, well, the devil made me do it, you know, <laughs> It's not to, to make the devil responsible for evil in the world. In fact, actually, and, and here's the interesting thing, the Bible does not actually blame the devil for the origin of evil in the world. Sometimes we have this misconception. Evil actually originates in the human heart that rebels against God. 
How the devil is related to that, we don't know, but he maximizes that. You know, to recognize the spiritual dimension of evil in the world is for us, not, it's not for us to turn away from taking seriously our own, uh, holding one another accountable and understanding um, our own evil. But it helps a lot, right? I mean, it helps us understand why evil in the world is so difficult to eradicate. It's, it's one thing to identify it and to point it out. It's another thing to do anything about it, right? Think about the various things that confront us as Americans today in the world. Mass shooter gun violence. I think there was a shooting just earlier, a couple days ago. Opioid, fentanyl, drug overdose. That massive, more people are dying of drug overdoses probably in any time in American history. Sex trafficking. You know, like, we, we all agree that these are evils. We all agree that they're bad. We all want, whatever your political, you know, ideology or, or inclination, we all agree they're bad and we want them to, but we seem incapable of really doing anything about it, right? And you can come up with reasons um, for this that are political or cultural, and we can point fingers in that, but we have to understand that there's something deeper going on here. These are deep, complex, embedded evils in the American way of life, that are like our demonic strongholds that are part of the fabric of our nation in a way. Every nation has them. And they have power that resists change and transformation. And this is where, again, this category of the powers and principalities is really helpful to have. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians uh, 6, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul isn't saying we only wrestle, or we, we, we only, you know, it's like that, that we only wrestle against the spiritual powers and forces. He's not saying that. But he's saying, it's like, don't think that, you know, uh, fatherlessness, drug addiction, Whatever, whatever the particular, and we talked about and prayed about a couple of them just this morning, that we're just dealing with a social problem, with good policy and, and maybe some better morals that we could overcome it. No, there's something spiritual, there's something deeper here. Friends, evil is real. Evil is real. <laughs> uh, it is potent. It resists change. And part of that is it is rooted in the spiritual realities and powers that are bigger and unseen forces behind us. But, but, the good news of the kingdom of God is this. Jesus has come and he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to set at liberty those who are oppressed. The kingdom of God breaks the spiritual power of enslaving evil in the world. See, when we underestimate the seriousness of evil in the world, we tend to have a diminished gospel as well. When you understand the real power of evil, both in your own heart and in the world, then the gospel becomes all the more precious. And one of the most amazing things about the ministry of Jesus was his power to break demonic evil, diabolical evil in the world. I mean, people had never seen anything like it, right? His very first miracle in the Gospel of Luke, after he's in Nazareth, 
is to cast out a demon out of a, a, a man in the synagogue. And when Jesus uh, confronts this man or this demon, the demon says this, ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. These the demons are actually the first, the first ones to recognize Jesus' true identity. When Jesus comes to the, the, the demoniac and the garrisons, uh, same thing. The demons recognize him immediately, and they say, what have you do, to do with us? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. Do not throw me into the abyss. They know their time is up. They know that they cannot coexist with the presence of the Son of God. God is coming, and he wants to reclaim his creation as his dwelling place. He wants to reclaim his image bearers as his dwelling place, and the demons cannot stay around. And they're terrified. They're absolutely terrified of Jesus. Uh, in, in, earlier in the gospel, Jesus sends out his 72 disciples. He has 72 disciples, sends them throughout the countryside to preach, and he gives them power to heal and to cast out demons. And when they return, they're just amazed. And they say this, even the demons, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus responds, and he says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, and behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Paul tells us later on that what Jesus does on the cross is he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And so when Jesus is talking about the strong man in this passage, he's talking about himself, right? He's the stronger man who comes and overcomes the strong man, divides his spoils, and ransacks him. That's Jesus, right? Friends, the gospel, the kingdom of God comes with power. It comes with real power. The gospel comes with power. When it comes into our life, it liberates us from evil. It liberates us from evil through the forgiveness of sin, the evil that holds us within. It breaks the power of shame and guilt, but it liberates us from evil without, the evil that holds us in bondage, in ways of thinking, ways of behaving, social contacts that keep us away from God and from ourselves and others. The gospel liberates us to live not beholden to the false gods and the idols and their power, which distort our humanity and disfigure us, but restores us to true humanity and dignity. And that's the thing you see in all the stories of the exorcisms. Um, Luke tells us about Mary Magdalene. We don't know what her life was like prior to meeting Jesus, but we do have a note that Jesus cast seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. But when we think of Mary Magdalene, we just think of this, this beautiful woman who is devoted to Jesus and actually helps support his ministry financially. Or the, the story of the, the, the demoniac and the garrisons. When, when the crowd of people come to see this man, he's sitting at Jesus' feet, he's fully clothed, and it says he was in his right mind. <laughs> when, when Jesus cast the demon out of the, the boy, it says he gave him back to his father. He gave him back to his father. That's, he's restoring his dignity, right? The church's ministry of exorcism is about people receiving back their dignity as image bearers. It's about people being restored in their humanity 
Because, again, the idols, they, they dehumanize us. They enslave us. They torment us. But the gospel liberates. It restores, and it's real power for dignity. Okay, so I think many of you are thinking, okay, well, how do we do this? <laughs> what does this look like? In many ways, this is, a, this is a whole other sermon that I have to preach. But let me just give you three things. What does it mean for the church to exercise spiritual power, liberating power of God's kingdom? This story is preceded by Jesus' teaching on prayer. He teaches about the Lord's prayer and the nature of prayer. And this is the first point. The first thing about a ministry of exorcism is, what I'll say is, prayer and righteous action. Prayer and righteous action. This is actually a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This story is, uh, you know, prayer. What is prayer about? It's about humbling ourselves. Humbling ourselves before God. Prayer attunes us to the spiritual nature of reality. It can help attune us to the spiritual nature of evil as well. But we're not humbling ourselves before evil. We're humbling ourselves before the Lord. And what we're doing is we're asking God, intervene, Lord. (laughs) Work in us and through us as we confront these powers. Work in us and through us. Um, I mentioned Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was um, a theologian in Germany during the Nazi, um, Nazi Germany. He was part of a plot to kill Adolf Hitler um, that was foiled, and he was arrested, and he was imprisoned. And eventually he was put to death by the Nazis at Hitler's command there. And in one of his letters... He writes to his friend about the Christian in the world today and its resistance to evil, and he says this. He says, our being Christian today will be limited to two things, prayer and righteous action among men. All Christian thinking and speaking and organizing must be born anew out of prayer and action. See, prayer is not a form of passivity, actually. Prayer is a preparation for righteous action. So that's the first way that the church confronts the powers, prayer and righteous action. The second way is through truth and obedience. Uh, I should have added this as part of our our passage because it belongs to the whole unit, but there's a scene uh, that concludes Jesus' teaching on exorcism in which a woman shouts out in the crowd, blessed is is the one whose womb, you know, you came and who nursed you at her breasts. And Jesus says immediately, Rather, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. The spiritual power of the kingdom of God resides in the word of God that is obeyed. Spiritual power of the kingdom of God resides in the word of God that is heard and obeyed. Satan is the father of lies, but God's word is truth. And the way, one of the things that keeps people enslaved are lies, are falsehoods. But God's word is truth. People are set forth, set free by the truth. But spiritual power of speaking the truth really only happens when we live in the truth, right? (laughs) And this is so important. It's those who listen to the truth and obey it. And this leads to a life of righteousness. Obedience to the truth is, is, leads to righteousness. And this is a form of spiritual power. 
It protects us against the evil one. I mean, nothing gives, again, Satan a foothold in our life like disobedience. <laughs> but when we live and we seek to obey and live in right relationship with God, there's, there's, a kind of, there's a power there, a power to resist the spiritual forces. And this is such an important part of the life of the church. And when the church lives in disobedience, um, it might think it has power, but it's just worldly power. But true spiritual power comes from a church and a people that humble themselves before the Lord and live in righteousness. So there's prayer and righteous action. There's truth and obedience. And the final one is this. is It's just it's ministry in Jesus' name. Ministry in Jesus' name. Exorcism must be in Jesus' name. Now, Jesus recognizes that there are other exorcisms going on. Some of the sons that, you know, of the Jews are exorcising demons. And it is the same today. There are various forms of exorcism, modern medicine and psychiatry and, and various things, that, and these are good things, right, that help pull people out of bondage, that help liberate people. But Jesus makes a, a very clear warning to us. And he is somewhat strange, but um, he wants us to know that outside of him, there is no permanent freedom from the powers. He says that when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through these waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. And then it goes and it gets seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. What's Jesus' point? What he's saying is this. There's no place of spiritual neutrality. There's no place of spiritual neutrality in the world between me and the, and the powers. There's no in-between, right? I mean, you can clean your house up. You can get your life together. You can get unaddicted and, you know, get a job or whatever it might be. But if you don't fill your house with the right power, you are vulnerable to having even something worse happen to you. I mean, when you drive up north sometimes and you see the little hotels or motels on the side of the road that, that have the signs that flashes no vacancy or vacancy, right? When it says no vacancy, what it means is like, we don't have any rooms. Just keep going, right? Keep going. We don't have any rooms to, to keep that. And that's the point here, right? Jesus said, there can't be any vacancy in your house. You clear it out. But if you don't put me in, the powers will come back. It's ministry in Jesus' name. When our lives are rooted by faith in Jesus, there is a power that dwells in us that, that it's, it leads to true freedom. It leads to a, a keeping of our humanity, a securing of it in his life as the Holy One, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that uh, we would um, know what it means to receive your indwelling presence as a power that um, we would have an enlarged imagination against the, the true evils and powers and principalities of this world that we wrestle against, that this would lead us to humble ourselves. But Lord, I also pray that we would take seriously the calling of this ministry, that there are so many people in the city of Milwaukee, in our neighborhood, in our families that, that are enslaved, that are under the tyranny of the demonic. Perhaps they don't even realize it. And Lord, we do not have the strength, we do not possess the strength in ourselves 
to make a difference, but we know that you give us weapons through prayer and through your word in which we can speak and we can have this ministry. And so I pray, Lord, that you would, um, you call us all in different ways to exercise this ministry and Lord, help us to uh, find strength in you. We give you thanks and praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.